Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Peter Watt's Big Canvas Australian historicals have garnered a popular following far beyond the shores of his homeland. And that's how Peter, a man of action who's been described as the Australian Wilbur Smith, likes it because he's always had a primary aim of entertaining readers and elevating Aussie stories to international notice. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Peter talks about living his dream life, volunteer firefighting for six months of the year and writing his new historical series in the other six. But before we get to Peter, just a reminder, you can find a full transcript of this chat with links to the topics discussed on thejoysofbingereading.com. If you enjoy the episode, why not subscribe to hear it every week on iTunes or Spotify and leave a review so others can enjoy it too. And also in great news, we've got a Facebook page for The Joys of Binge Reading now. Take a look at Facebook and just search on thejoysofbingereading.com. You'll find a page come up there with all our latest news. But now, here's Peter. Hello there, Peter, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hello, Jenny, and kia ora to all my New Zealand readers. That's fantastic, and you do have a, a lot of New Zealand readers. We'll get on to that, but... Beginning at the beginning, I always like to ask this question, although it's maybe a little cliched, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? Yes, well, I've looked at this question many times and I think I was age seven, sitting on a tractor and I sold a settler block, driving round and round in circles. And of course, in those days, there were no cabins. You just sucked in the diesel and sucked up the dust. And I thought to myself, I've got to start creating stories in my head so I don't go mad. <laughs> to say it started there, Jenny. But it took you a long time then to get round to doing it. Yes, you know, uh, we make the mistake of letting life get in the way and not devoting ourselves to what we really want to do. Yes. And I was about, oh, I guess 50 when I commenced writing Cry of the Curlew and uh, from there it's been, you know, as I say, history with all the other books following. Yes, and did you always know it would be historical fiction that you would want to write? Yes, most definitely. I mean, I was influenced by James A. Mitchell and some of the Leon Uris and many of those other American writers who tended to write with historical background. And I always thought that our part of the world, Australia, New Zealand, had uh, got very little exposure in literature. So I devoted myself to that. Yes, and I know that you've said that actually you, you probably have been responsible for a, a little bit of a tourist boom, drawing people to Australia, having become interested in the Australian stories. So you've been successful at that. Yes. Um, it's nice when I would receive emails from American readers who would say, you know, we never thought about coming to Australia until we read one of your books. And I would sometimes meet them at the airport and you know, give them a bit of a guided tour. Fantastic. What a lovely thing. So you've read, led a remarkably adventurous life, and we'll get on to that, but your series, you've got a 12-book frontier series, which is a very big family drama. In fact, it follows the rivalry between two families. 
And now you've started a new series, The Queen's Colonial. There have been a, a few standalones, and I think a Papua New Guinea trilogy in the middle there somewhere. But let's talk about the latest book, The Queen's Colonial. Tell us about that new series. Well, I was influenced by the fact that when I was researching the Crimean War, which was always a fascinating war, that people's names would crop up on regimental rolls as being born in a colony of New South Wales or Victoria or New Zealand for that matter. And I thought, these are the um, kind of forgotten Aussies, you know, who participated in European affairs. So that inspired me to write the book, The Queen's Colonial. Yeah. And you were doing the Crimea research for the Frontier series, were you? No, it did uh, crop up. It was only the fact that I was looking at the Crimean War because it was an interesting subject. And this is where it all cropped up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, and actually the Queen's Colonial starts in New Zealand rather briefly, but and then progresses to Australia. And most of it actually is based in England and then Crimea, I think. But um, tell us about the New Zealand bit for those people who might be listening in New Zealand. Well, it starts out with the first major uh, clash between uh, the Maori and the British, where the British went in very arrogantly with even you know, rocket batteries and everything else, and they thought they would teach the Maori a lesson because they're used to doing this to other native populations. And as it was, it became a massive defeat for the British Army. They had to retreat. And the third book in the series, which I'm currently writing, will be half that book will be devoted to the uh, Waikato campaign around about 1864-65. So we start in New Zealand and we end in New Zealand with the third book. Oh, great, great. And you, I think you mentioned that uh, famous forest ranger Von Tempsky too as well, don't you? Yes, I've even got a little leaden statue of him here sitting on my desk. Oh, have you? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, that, he alone is a book, you know, his uh, life and adventures. Yes, I, I must admit shamefully that I haven't yet been tempted to try and write New Zealand historicals, but I've got a couple of great, great uncles who weren't actually forest rangers, but who fought alongside Von Tempsky and who um, Von Tempsky actually made notes about in his journal, these two guys. And I, I sort of find, I, I thought, I'm afraid that my family are part of the empire builders, you know, that they, they we did actually get land from the Maori. And these days it's a little something a little to be a little shamed about, I guess, but they very much came from that, um, that background. Yeah. So, the Frontier series tracks the deadly rivalry between two families, the Duffies and the McIntyres. Is it McIntyre? McIntyre's. Yeah. McIntyre's. And you, I think you finished that in about the 1950s, did you? In Malaysia and in Malay, the Malaya War and the Vietnam War. No, I actually finished it in 1968 oh. with the Battle of Balmoral and Coral, where. Um, uh, Australians fought their biggest battle in Vietnam ah. um, and it was never mentioned much in the um, media because at that stage the media were more or less supporting the anti-Vietnam campaign but it was a massive battle where the men who defended Balmoral and Coral and amongst them were many Kiwis uh, actually ended up with almost hand-to-hand -hand fighting uh, being overrun by the North Vietnamese. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, that was a war, sadly, where the men who fought didn't get the recognition they deserved at home because of the political climate. A very good friend of mine, Lieutenant Dave Sabin, at the Battle of Belmoral, uh, sorry, at the Battle of Long Tan, 
always praise the Kiwi gunners who saved them you know, from being overrun. I noticed also in the Battle of Kapiong, it was Kiwi artillery gunners that saved us there as well. So the Australian Army has the highest respect for the uh, New Zealand artillery. And you trained as a military advisor for Vietnam, but I gather you didn't quite get there before the war ended. Is that right? Yes. What happened, um, the training was intensive. The training team were the equivalent of the American Green Berets, where we were to live in villages, so we had to be able to speak the language. We had to know every weapon on the battlefield. It was a rather intensive course, and I was the youngest ever to be selected. It was for a section called a mobile army training team section. And... I got out of the army, I thought, well, I've learnt Vietnamese, what a useless language. But years later, as a police officer, I was the only one who could read, write and speak the language. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, were you disappointed you didn't get there or relieved? Well, see, I volunteered. I signed up for three years. And every soldier who volunteers wants to see some action. Now, it may change when they get there, but it's a case of this is what I'm trained for, this is what I should be doing. So I was very disappointed, yes. Yes, I noticed that in the Queen's Colonial, your character Ian, you mention at one stage that he's he's addicted to war or he found war addictive. And I wondered if you'd come across men like that. Yes, Jenny, most definitely. I, I knew um, soldiers during the Vietnam War who couldn't get back quick enough. You know, they'd volunteer for a second uh, deployment or a third deployment. And for them, war was their reality. Peacetime was their... Uh, well, yeah, just filled in between war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a kind of, um, it's not for every man, but some men are born warriors. And, uh, of course, I'm speaking to a country where the Maori are world famous for their fighting abilities through actions from World War One through to World War Two, Kapyong or Korea and, and even Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right, yeah. You have been described as the Australian Wilbur Smith, and you've mentioned James K. Michener and Leon Uris. They're, they're, they're all men who, who paint big canvases. What is it that attracts you to these writers and what do you think you share with them? Well, I guess I share that love of history. You know, history is an unpopular subject. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's because it's the way it's taught at school. You know, we learn about politicians and dates and explorers, but we don't learn about what people were like in those days, you know, what they thought, what they felt. And as you research their diaries and their letters, you realise they're no different to us. They just have different technology and different attitudes. They're our ancestors. Yeah, 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 that's right. And I gather you actually did develop more than a passing acquaintance with Wilbur Smith, that you have had a chance <laughs> to talk with him. Yes. He came to Australia for a book signing tour and I was invited because he writes through Pan Macmillan in Australia, the same publishers that I do. So they introduced us and I can always remember being in awe of this great man and he is a truly wonderful man as well as being a brilliant writer and I remember saying to him Cobber you stick with Africa the Middle East and Europe don't cross the Indian Ocean I'll look after Australia New Zealand Asia and the Pacific and we shook on that <laughs> but I've cheated I've been to Africa in a few of my books as you may know yes. uh, I mean um, very few Australians realize that in 1884-85 the army of New South Wales went to the Sudan to fight in the uh, war where um, uh, Khartoum, you know, many people say that movie Khartoum, yes. and went and fought in that war. It was the uh, colony of New South Wales yeah. alongside the British Army. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how our ancestors seem to feel that need to get involved in European wars, isn't it? <laughs> oh, 
I mean, New South Wales played a dirty trick on the other colonies that um, blocked their telegrams getting through requesting troops. They wanted all the glory. <laughs> of course, in our state of origin, they're still trying that, you know. <laughs> I wondered what sort of Australian history you might have got taught at school because I know from my experience, actually, we hardly, my schooling involved almost no New Zealand history. And when I got to university and actually wanted to do a paper on New Zealand history, I was told no for various reasons. I couldn't do that, even though I was going to be a history teacher. At the time, I was absolutely amazed and, and astounded. But we did undervalue our own history 30 years, 40 years ago, I think, didn't we? My brother-in-law is a Pākehā Kiwi, and he said when he was at school, nothing was mentioned about the um, New Zealand wars. You know, he said, oh, we didn't want to stir up our fellow students. And, of course, I have a uh, Maori son-in-law and a Cook Islander son-in-law. So I have some exposure to the Pacific and that part of the world. But at school, we're only taught about explorers in Australia, all the boring stuff. We were never taught about the frontier of Queensland or West Australia or Northern Territory. And your your history with the the original people was obviously something that was very much passed over, not now, but I do love in your books the way that you treat the Aboriginals right from the first book. They are taken seriously and treated with honour and respect. You know, I've lived amongst Aboriginal communities in the Gulf Country where I was working as a guest editor's assistant and we would be there for six months. So I started actually learning some of the dialect of that area. And the worst part is the first words you learn are all the bad words. So I won't repeat them here in this interview because somebody else might understand them. And, and as a result of that, the character of Wallery grew from an old bloke who learned I was learning their language and he took me out in the bush and he taught me their ways. And he got to like me a lot. And I always remember a funny story he told me that uh, we were sitting there fishing for barramundi. He started chuckling and I said, what is it, Billy? He said, oh, he said, some of these uh, uh, white people called anthropologists, they come down from the university and they want to learn all about the dreamtime stories of my people. So I tell them to go and get some backy, you know, tobacco, of course, and I sit under the bumble tree and I tell them the stories of the dreamtime. And I said, that's wonderful, Billy, you know, so the white man will know. And he started laughing again. He said, yeah, but I made them up. <laughs> and I thought to myself, he has this wonderful sense of humour. He says, I get one on the white fella. I get one back in the white fella, and I thought to myself, he's got to become a character in my books, and hence that old man from Doomagee in the Gulf Country has now become Wallery in the stories. Yes, and I love that character, actually. It's, it's actually tragic, that, that storyline, but it is very, very interesting. You know, he's a, a cult figure in Germany. Is um, that right? Yes, I often get emails from Germany. They all love Wallery, you know, from mostly German uni students, and um, he's sort of become a bit of a cult figure. He should develop his own website. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea, Jenny. I never thought of that. <laughs> so you've been a journo. <laughs> you've highlighted some obscure New Zealand history as well. I must admit that uh, I, in your book, The Silent Frontier, you refer to one of these tales, which I had never heard of before, that 3,000 Australians came to fight in the land wars here in 1864. Now, I... I must admit, I've got a, a Maori um, running coach and I asked Warumu, because he also has been in the Navy, so his family, yeah. and he, he knew about this, but I had never heard of it. Well, the interesting thing is I was on tour in New Zealand with one of my books 
And I bumped into so many descendants of those. They would say, my great-great-grandfather came here from, you know, the colony of New South Wales or Tasmania to engage. And what the British Army would do, they would sign them up so they're part of the British Army. They weren't recognised as colonial Australians. But I always tell friends now, I said, with 3,000 Aussies going over there at that period of time, now you know why the Kiwis are coming here. They're just getting their revenge. <laughs> it's interesting to know how many of them actually stayed and how many went home again, yeah. You grew up in um, the country, and, and I, I noticed from your biography online that you attended Catholic boarding schools, so you, you got sent away to school. I wondered if that was partly because of the rural education not quite being what it should be, and, and I was wondering if it actually suggested an Irish family heritage, but you just mentioned to me before we started this interview that it's actually a Scottish heritage. It's both, Irish-Scottish. My mother was of Irish descent, my dad of Scottish, so I came from a, uh, a Baptist Catholic background, and you don't get more, more divergent than that. <laughs> you surely don't, but you ended up going to Catholic schools. Yes, it was a case of being on the farm, you went to a boarding school. Yeah. And uh, it was a case of you learned to get tough. I mean, if you couldn't stand up and fight, you lost your meat pie on Tuesdays. <laughs> so what age did you did you actually start at boarding school? I think I was around about um, 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was effectively the start of your secondary schooling, was it? Oh, no, it was through primary as well. So oh, it must have right. been early. I've never thought about that, yeah. but it was uh, yeah. a case of being fairly young Um and all the way in boarding school till the end of my schooling. Right, okay. So first had nuns teaching me, then brothers, and then it was priests. Mm, mm. And, and now I'm just a Christian. <laughs> Barely. Well, I'm glad that, that uh, I'm surprised that it didn't actually inoculate you. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, My best friend is the Uniting Church uh, pastor here, or uh, Reverend, and uh, we're both in the Royal Fire Service. And he also had a Catholic upbringing. He went to the best exclusive Catholic school in Australia, but he, um, to use the expression, a lot of Catholics would recognise, dropped the rosary beads and became a uniting church pastor. Yeah. <laughs> He's still one of my best mates. Oh, that's lovely. Great. So tell us a bit about the arc of, of this. What, what do you call this new series? I, I didn't quite find, I mean, the other one was Frontier. Have you got a, a sort of a noma for this one yet? Yes, I've. Guess I'll just call it the Queen's Colonial series. Okay, yes. Uh, it's originally meant to be a trilogy, but I can see it going into six books at least. Oh. And uh, so we keep the Queen's Colonial in the title. So we've got the Queen's Tiger comes out this year, and next year I'm toying with the Queen's Corgi. <laughs> I think I'll drop the Corgi a bit. <laughs> Doesn't quite fit your image. <laughs> no, no. So those feature Ian Steele. So is Ian going to be a continuing character through them all? Till he, till he gets killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> most readers know, don't get close to the main character. He could be dead by Chapter 17. But no, <laughs> Ian will continue on. He's, in my mind, he's now on the northwest frontier of India fighting for his life, and he'll end up in New Zealand. Uh, that'll bring him that big circle, so he'll come back to yes. Australia. So. Yes, yeah. So he is an Australian convict son who by a little interesting slate of hand, we won't spoil the story of how, but he, he manages to get the chance to become an officer in the British Army, which is a, a lifelong dream that as a convict son he would never have been able to achieve unless there'd been some little twist of fate. Um, and 
the one thing I, I felt, I just felt a little bit of a sense of loss that he didn't spend much time in Australia because Australia is such a wonderful character in a lot of your other books. And I wondered if you'd had any complaints from people who said they want him to spend more time in Australia. Well, no, this is interesting because um, he's still an Australian. I'll be bringing in New Zealand characters, of course, in my third book. And it's a case when we read a book, Often enough, if you might be reading an American written book and suddenly an Australian character crops up, we immediately become interested. Yeah. And so we see our place somewhere else in the world then. Yeah. That sounds a bit intellectual. That's not my books. (laughs) You know, the interesting thing is that I write to entertain. And I always remember when my first book came out, it was a nice big thick book. And I'd get emails from Canadians who said, you know, I picked up your book in London at Heathrow or Paris and the only reason I picked your book was it was so big. I knew it would get me across the Atlantic. And they said, I'd, before I knew it, I was back in Canada or the USA. So size does count in some cases. And, and that was kind of nice too that they found it was so engrossing that they hardly knew they were on the plane. Yeah, yeah. You've kind of joked that um, about the stigma of, of being a, a popular author and that you're never considered for literary awards. But I wondered... In this new publishing environment, you're still very much traditionally published by a mainstream publisher, but do you feel that maybe the stigma of being mass market is fading a little now that there's so many indie books being published? It's interesting. You know, um, I remember when I first started with my first book and the wonderful Kate Patterson, who's the uh, chief publisher in Australia for Pan Macmillan, and she said to me, she had this pained look on her face when she met me, and she said, do you ever hope to win any literary awards? And I looked at her, I said, no, I just want to be rich and famous. And she said, she said, thank God, because our popular writers support our literary writers. Yeah. Because um, also had Picador as part of their um, establishment. And I'm neither rich or famous, but I've had a bit of fun along the way. And it enables you to be a volunteer firefighter for six months of the year. Well, this is right. You know, I don't have these commitments to going and winning awards. You know, all I have to do is go out there for six months of the year and uh, sit in a truck with my crew, because I'm crew leader, and, you know, fight fires. And there have been at least three occasions over the last 10 years where I didn't think I was going to make it out alive. And I keep saying to myself, I'm getting, I'm not getting paid for this. Uh, three times I've almost been killed. Uh, why do I do it? So there is insanity in every writer. <laughs> Did you find an answer for yourself at that time? I guess it was because of my past. You know, um, many times in my past where I didn't think I was going to walk away. Um, And it is a bit of an adrenaline thing. You know, why do people rappel down off cliffs without safety nets? That type of thing. Yeah. In my case, it's doing something for the community. You know, like only a few days ago, uh, we fought a ferocious fire, but we saved two houses. But the media doesn't report the fact that you save houses, just that certain houses get burnt down. Yeah. And the look at the on the faces of the people whose houses we saved, that was the best reward we could get. Yeah. So for people who don't understand perhaps so well the Australian situation, I know that this interview has been um, postponed twice because you got called out firefighting. You've been in Tasmania just in the last couple of weeks and you were explaining that if there weren't volunteer firefighters, Australia really wouldn't wouldn't be able to continue as it is because there are so many communities where these spontaneous fires erupt and the country just couldn't afford to pay firefighters to pay the, to, to fight them all, could that could it? Well this is right. I mean we have a joke. 
you know, to be in the rural fire service or the country fire authority or the country fire service in the other states, that you have to be over 65, have at least one hip operation, um, be deaf, can hardly see, and then they'll be accepted as a volunteer. <laughs> Sadly, our young people don't have the time to volunteer because they're tied up with family and work and so on. But we do have, I think, if I remember rightly, we have two people who are very young. They're over 30, but they're very young. Yeah. <laughs> at least for the rest of us. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. It gives you a very exciting thing to do later, later in life, for sure. You know, some of the firefighters are almost 80, and yet they're out on a fire truck. They're up and down hills, dragging hoses in an intense heat, and they're almost 80 years old. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. And yet society writes off older people as being useless. Um, and if it wasn't for these useless older people, towns would burn down, cities would be gutted. So it's the old generation that are looking after the country. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea, actually, that there was such a skew towards older people. But when you think about it, um, of course, it would be very difficult for young people to just drop everything and jump on a fire truck. Look, slightly changing track, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you feel has been the secret of your success? I mean, you've had amazing longevity. Well, I think I remember Bryce Courtney was once asked, do you write books from your heart? He said, no, I write them from my head. He says, it was a bit like Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens used to find out from his readers what they would like to see happen next in the book. And on that philosophy, I kind of write what I want. I think people want to read. But at the same time, so many people have said to me, you've taught us so much about history we didn't know about because my readers know I don't write about convicts and kangaroos. I write about the lesser-known parts of our history, and that's what fascinates people. For example, with the book I wrote about New Zealand, I did that because I knew I had a New Zealand following and I wanted to include New Zealand in my um, collection of books and I will be doing it again next year with the third book uh, because we have had such a strong bond. I mean, uh, we might kid each other, but I always remember I was with the military in New Zealand back in 1983, I think it was. I took a platoon of mostly Aboriginal soldiers to New Zealand. We went on exercises down at Tekapo, and I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, that's right. And, yep, and... I remember saying to the men, just casually sitting around, I said, what if New Zealand went to war and Australia said it wasn't going to support them? And every man said, well, we would come over here as volunteers to fight. Wow. And that was the attitude. Yeah. You know, even if our country didn't, we would all, it'd be back like to the uh, 3,000 went across, <laughs> except they're on the wrong side that time. <laughs> but Aussies feel that way about New Zealanders, you know. Yes. Except when it comes to the rugby. And I found a loophole, and this is going to warn all you Kiwis, New Zealand once belonged to New South Wales, so I'm going to put it forward to the government that we take New Zealand back into New South Wales, disband the All Blacks, <laughs> then we've got a chance. <laughs> very good, very good. So do you get direct suggestions from readers about stories or what they'd like to see happen with different characters? Do you get that kind of feedback sometimes? No, usually I get cursed. Oh, damn. Um, you know, damn you. Why did you kill off Luke Tracy? I really liked him, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that character. He was an American character in the earlier books and uh, I eventually thought, well, I'd better kill him off in some dramatic way. And I got a heap of mail from the lady readers who said, you know, um, why did you do that? And I just said, I had a downer on Yanks that day and somebody had to die. <laughs> 
the turning to Peter as reader, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and we do try and interview series readers who've written books that people like to follow the whole series. But who do you like to binge read these days? Um, you've mentioned James Mitchin and Leon Uris and Wilbur Smith. I'm sure they're amongst your favourites. Is there any? Are there any new ones that you've been been following in recent times? Well, there's Tony Park. Now I've got to do a bit of an ad for Tony Park. He's a great mate. He's an Aussie. He uh, spent six months in Africa and six months in Australia, and he's an ex uh, army officer who served in Afghanistan with the SAS as a PR officer and. He writes a great yarn too, and I love reading, reading his books. And what what are they? What what? They're set against Africa. They're um, modern day thrillers. You know, it'll be about the um, game wardens. You know, um, fighting poachers or uh, uh, similar type of stories. But he is sort of taking over from Wilbur a little bit in modern times. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Do you get out and do book tours and things these days? Do you. No, because bookshops have disappeared in Australia. Mm. Um, I do remember an incident when I was touring New Zealand where I was in Whitcools, I think it was in Auckland, and I saw a lady down in the back corner. It was during the big blackout. Oh, yes, I remember that, yes. Yeah, the big blackout. And she was down in that corner. It was rather dark, and she was looking at my latest book at the time, and I made the mistake of going down and saying to her, if you buy that book, I'll sign it for you. And she knew there was a maniac loose in Whitcools, which is around for security. You know, you get these people impersonating Napoleon yeah. and that. And I thought to myself, who'd want to impersonate me for a start? So anyway, in desperation, I said, if you look inside the cover, you'll see my photo. So with one eye on me, just in case I lunged at her with an axe, and then looked in the cover, said, it really is you. And I said, yeah, I saw in the book for you. I said, how did you get onto this book? She said, I was in South Africa. I was talking to my friends in South Africa, and I asked them, who's a writer a bit like Wilbur Smith? They said, oh, there's Peter Watt. From Australia, and that's how she, how she got onto that book. And I thought that's wonderful, you know, that um, somebody in South Africa would recommend me. Yeah, it is fantastic. I, I have a little confession to make. You know, I've got a sister who's lived in Australia longer than she's ever lived in New Zealand now, and she lived. She's living in Coolangatta now, but she was living in New South Wales, and I honestly can't remember whether it was in Newcastle or Coolangatta. I think it was in Coolangatta. You were signing books in a bookshop, and I had never heard of you. And I hovered around, thinking, "Should I get one of these books?" And in the end, I didn't. But when I came to interview you, I thought that was Peter Watt years ago in Cool and Gatter in a bookshop. And I didn't. I could have got to know his work then, sort of thing. You know, it was funny. It <laughs> came back to me. <laughs> I remember you now, Jenny. I saw somebody skulking off. I was going to follow you, but you know. Um, but the whole thing is, I used to live at Tweed Heads, which is adjacent oh, to yes, Kilcatta. Yes, that would so be it. Was it. it was probably in Tweed country. Heads, actually, yeah. Mm. yeah. And uh, so, but it's kind of interesting too. Even in Australia, I'm not that well known. Uh, I'm better known internationally, you know, in Germany and the Czech Republic and all these other strange places where I can't even read the titles on the books. Yes. Uh, but over there, apparently, they're not mesmerised by an under-25-year-old drug addict recovering, who's written a book about their life and is on every morning show and is a bestseller that night. <laughs> uh, the TV dictates what people read here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was on New Zealand TV once. That's the only time I've ever been on TV. Is that right? Oh, that amazes me, actually. It really does. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling round, looking back over your very um, interesting and eventful life, 
at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Three (laughs) ex-wives. You'd like to have started on number four right at the beginning. Yes. She's a wonderful lady. (laughs) Um, Now, I guess the sad part in life is we only get one go at it, unless, of course, you're a Buddhist and then you get reincarnated. Um, So all the mistakes I made have sort of led me here, I guess. Yeah, and would you care to kind of specify any particular mistakes? Um, Three ex-wives? Oh, no, we already (laughs) mentioned that, didn't we? And you uh, did very, you did very smartly mention to me that you every time you changed jobs, you changed wives. But I was pointing out that things like being a police officer are extremely um, marriage testing um, jobs to have, and you have done some jobs that have been rather marriage testing jobs, haven't you? To to, to help to sort of alleviate some of the responsibility. <laughs> well, you know, while we're on this, I've been ch- trying to track down. One of my best mates, he's a Kiwi ex-copper, and he and I served together in Papua New Guinea, uh, Kevin G. And if Kevin's out there and he hears this, mate, give me a call. Is that G-double-E? Yes, and Kevin with a K-E-V-O-N. But Kevin and I were the very best mates while we were up in Papua New Guinea. We saw a lot of action up there together. Uh, Kevin actually got attacked and had an axe put through his back at one stage. Um, it was a wild frontier, the old Papua New Guinea days. My goodness me, there's, there's a very famous New Zealand writer called Morris G. In fact, there's several of the G family who are very good writers, so I'm not sure whether he'd even be related into that line. But no, Kevin, moving Kevin, on. I was going to say, Jenny, Kevin was more of a drinker. <laughs> what is next for Peter the writer? You've, you've mentioned that you're working on this um, New Zealand, well, partly New Zealand-based series. Anything else apart from that that you've got going at the moment? At the end of this third book, I'll be facing a choice of either quitting writing or um, probably getting another three-book deal if I suggest the next series. And the next series, I think, would be the son of Ian Steele, uh, jump ahead 20 years in the campaigns he fights. But again, it'll bring him back to Australia with the uh, Federation, where he becomes part of Australia again. Yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't consider doing indie pub, if you didn't say, for example, if Pam McMillan decided they weren't going to go to another three-book deal, you wouldn't consider the indie publishing? Um, well, you know, I've, I hit the big 7-0 this year. Yes. I thought, well, I'd rather be out fishing and, you know, going out and fighting fires. Writing is a tough business. Yeah. You know, it's uh, 10 hours a day, seven days a week for six months. And I think to myself, well, life's getting shorter. Maybe I should go and enjoy myself. Yeah. Just very quickly, do you do you do lots of drafts? Ten hours a day, that's a very heavy day. Most of it's done in research. You yeah. know, the thing is that you must get your facts yeah. right. And um, But it was pretty easy for this last book that I wrote because it was all um, uh, accounts by people who were there, mm. you know, eyewitness mm. accounts. So I just sort of put my fictional characters against their accounts. Mm. Mm. But I know, I know of Pan McMillan, if I said, yeah, I've got another three books to go, that would give you a three-book deal. But that ties me down, down to three years of writing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So probably the final question then, do do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online or do you interact in other places apart from online? A lot of it is online. Now with Facebook there is a site called Fans of Peter Watt Books and I often have competitions on there for the latest releases and... I even include um, 
my website where the books can be found in every book that's published, you know, the old www.peterwatt.com. Yeah. And often enough, speaking to people on Facebook, for example, I always post up pictures of firefighting, um, you know, a few exciting things because that's about the only exciting things that happen in my life. Um, being a writer or an actor is pretty boring for most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. So people can find you fans of Peter Watt books. That's fantastic. On Facebook. And I'd love them to come in because um, I already have some wonderful New Zealand readers on there. And, um, and of course, to me, New Zealand is very valued because per head of population, probably more Kiwis reading my books than Aussies. <laughs> so that's why New Zealand gets included in the next book that I write. Yeah, I, I hate to mention it, but that famous quip of a, of a New Zealand Prime Minister that when um, lots of Kiwis moved to, Austra to Australia, they up, may up the national IQ by, <laughs> that shows you, you see, they read more Peter Watt here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can tell you there are people over in New Zealand right now probably reading a Peter Watt book. <laughs> <clears throat> Look, that's lovely, Peter. We wish you all the best with the, the next series that you're doing and um it's been wonderful talking today thank you so much jenny it's been a pleasure and um all the best to all my new zealand readers and hopefully australia will have a chance in the next uh, world series against the all blacks yeah i'm just wondering what's happening with the cricket actually that, that I've, I've lost track of when we're playing cricket next against you <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, rugby is a religion of mine is it oh good yeah. okay look wonderful thanks so much peter have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Finch Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.